Well, Bill, what did you think about the training seminar? I kept thinking I'd run into you in the hotel lobby sometime this week, but they kept us so busy. Yeah, I feel like I need a vacation now. I don't know why they sent us these nice locations and then scheduled meetings from early in the morning to late in the afternoon. As far as the seminar, I thought it was well above average with lots of useful information. I'm actually thinking it was pretty worthwhile. What'd you think? Well, I'm, I'm not so sure that what's best about these things isn't simply the opportunity to get away from the rat race long enough to think a little, to kind of sort things out, to ask some good questions and to be asked some good questions that are thought-provoking. You know, have a chance to get a fresh perspective. You mean having time to sharpen the axe? Exactly. I feel like I've been swinging with a dull axe and that I really can't take the time out to sharpen it. Then I get out of town for training and I realize all over again that I really can't afford not to take the time out to sharpen it. Great point, Lamar. Now that I think about it, I could get a lot of the same benefit at home if I'd carve out the time to do more reflecting. I quite agree. That's my experience. That's one of the reasons I value so highly the talks that you and I have been having about God. These talks have allowed me to sharpen the axe, so to speak, and maybe the most important area of all. That reminds me. I was about to ask you a question at the end of our discussion on hypocrisy right before they served our meal. Then I fell asleep after dinner. <laughs> yeah, you were really out. Uh, you'd been pushing it pretty hard the previous two weeks, as I recall, and I didn't really have the heart to wake you up. Do you still remember the question? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. It's just hypothetical. But it's one of those great cut-through-the-smoke type of questions. Here it is. If you were standing at the gate of heaven and God asked you, Lamar, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? You mean if this plane goes down this afternoon and I'm face-to-face with my maker, what would I say to him? Yep, that's the question. What would your answer be? Well, um, hmm. I guess I'd say that While I'm not sure I stack up too well against the lives of some of the people you were describing on the flight up here, you know, the sincere non-hypocrites, I think I've tried to live my life according to the golden rule and, for that matter, the Ten Commandments. I'm committed to being a good husband and father and to treating people the way I'd like to be treated. Um, That really is a good question, and uh, I guess I'm not completely comfortable with my answer, Bill. Uh, let me uh, let me ask you, what would you say to that question? Well, if I answered God by saying that I should be let in because I've led a good life, I'm convinced that I'd flunk, that he wouldn't let me in. What now? Why, why do you think you wouldn't make it? Because it seems like the more I learn about God and about what he expects, the more I learn about what real goodness is on the one hand, and on the other hand, the more honest I'm willing to be about myself, the more impressed I become about how terribly far short I fall, how unqualified I am to earn a spot in heaven. Bill, what on earth are you talking about? I've always thought of you as one of the really good guys, and I've always looked up to you. Were you a serial killer before I met you? (laughs) No, it's just that Jesus defined goodness much differently than we do. Early in the Sermon on the Mount, before he gave the golden rule, he said, Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And before that, he told the people that unless their goodness was better than the goodness of the religious leaders, they wouldn't make it into the kingdom of heaven. And then he went on and explained why the religious leaders, do-gooders that they were, didn't qualify. 
Okay, were these the ones you were talking about who got upset because Jesus called them uh, hypocrites? Yes, the same ones. Jesus said it's not only wrong to commit murder, but that it's wrong to curse your brother or to harbor a grudge. Not only wrong to commit adultery, but wrong to allow yourself to think lustful thoughts. Aha, that's Jimmy Carter. That's where he's quoting from, exactly. Uh In other words, it's not only a sin to commit a wrong act, it's a sin to have the wrong thoughts and attitudes. The idea is that God not only cares about what we do on the outside that others can see, but about what's on the inside of us that no one else may know about. His standard is perfection, not some dumbed-down moral mediocrity. Wait a minute, Bill. That sounds impossible. Surely God can't really expect perfection. I thought you believed in a God of love and forgiveness. I do, but I don't want to fall prey to the peril of the pendulum. The peril of the pendulum? What's that supposed to be? (laughs) Well, you know how a pendulum works. It swings from one extreme to the other, but never stops in the middle. And that's the way it seems like it is with popular notions about God. One extreme is to think of God as some heavenly ogre or killjoy, spewing out hellfire and damnation and brimstone. Or it's as if he were booming a question out from heaven. Is anyone down there having a good time? Somebody says yes, and God shouts back, well, cut it out. (laughs) Well, yeah, frankly, uh, growing up in a very rural and a very southern uh, state, that's exactly the kind of God that I learned about from as early as I can remember. Don't, don't, don't. Anything that was fun was sinful by definition. We were constantly reminded of what awful sinners we were, and even with a bony finger pointed at us at times from the pulpit. And if we weren't saved, whatever that meant, we'd fry in torment and hell forever. Shame, guilt, and fear were the main motivators. I thought they taught it at seminary. (laughs) Although you probably think your church was unique in this, that conception of God was fairly common. It's a terrible distortion and slander against the God of the Bible, and it causes a lot of damage. But you know there's another equally great error to be avoided on the opposite swing of the pendulum? Which is? The idea that God is only a God of love, that love is the only divine characteristic of any importance, and that holiness, purity, justice, and truth really don't matter. God, for many people, even for a lot of ministers— is like some senile old grandfather in the sky who hears no evil and sees no evil. C.S. Lewis said that some people's concept of God is that his only concern is that it could be said at the end of a day that a good time was had by all. Is everybody having fun? You know, I hate to ask a dumb question, but what's the matter with that? Well, first of all, it leaves evil unpunished. Secondly, if God's not just and holy as well as loving, then I submit he's not even loving. How's that? Well, imagine yourself as a Jew in the Holocaust with scars both physically and emotionally. Uh, Your family's been tortured and killed. If God doesn't plan to deal out justice to Hitler and his cohorts, not in this life, not in the next, would you feel like he loves you? If he knew that someone was torturing me and he never planned to bring him to justice? Never. I would feel very much abandoned and unloved. Take away justice? and you end up taking away love. It's his love that motivates him to bring justice to those who use the free will he lovingly gave them to harm other creatures he loves. Let me try another example. Good, because I'm still struggling with this necessity for God to have the perfect standard and to judge people. Isn't that what being sorry and asking forgiveness is all about? Nope. Different issue. 
Now, imagine that I'm short on cash and I decide to rob a convenience store. In the midst of the robbery, my mask falls off, and knowing that he might identify me, I impulsively shoot and kill the clerk. Boy, it does take an imagination to see that. (laughs) But as I read about the grieving widow and her four children, my remorse and guilt overwhelm me until I finally turn myself into the authorities and plead guilty at the trial. After I'm pronounced guilty and it's time for sentencing, let's imagine that I approach the bench and that you're the judge. Your Honor, I'm terribly sorry for what I've done. I want to do better with my life, and I ask you for a pardon. Will you let me go free? Well, in the first place, how do I know that you're really sorry? Well, remember, I I did turn myself in. But if you're able to somehow supernaturally see inside me and know that I was truly sorry, now will you let me go? Well, not so fast. Uh, How do I know that you wouldn't do the crime again sometime? All right, again, now, suppose that supernaturally somehow you could see into the future and know that I'd never commit that crime again. Will you let me go? But, Bill, what about the poor man's wife and children who are screaming for revenge or justice and equaling of the scales? What about their demands? Suppose they're not screaming for revenge. They're simply numb with pain over their irretrievable loss. Now will you let me go? Something just doesn't seem right about letting you go scot-free. I don't know exactly what it is, but I don't think I could do it. You think I need to serve some kind of time to pay some kind of penalty. But, Lamar, it's not because you're mean and vengeful. It's because you're caring and because you have a sense of justice. The fact that I'm sincerely sorry doesn't remove the need for justice. Okay, I see your point. But wouldn't God's justice be different from ours, Bill? Yes, I think God's justice is different from ours, but it's different in that he's more just than we are, not less. That's why being sorry in and of itself doesn't solve the problem between us and God. So that's why you think God wouldn't let you into heaven? Yes, that's exactly the reason. I believe he is a loving God, but he's also just and holy. And there are two things I know for sure about myself, according to the Bible. One is that I'm a sinner, and the other is that I'm separated from God. Wait a minute, Bill. Don't you think the word sinner is a little bit strong? Well, the Bible defines sin as falling short of the glory of God. In other words, a failing to live up to my potential as a being created in his image or likeness means failing to love unconditionally like God loves, failing to be fair or kind or compassionate or forgiving, or even a failure to be pure in my thoughts. If that's what sin is, since I fail regularly to hit that target— And that means I'm a sinner. Okay. If you define it that way, sure, we're all sinners. But why does that have to separate us from God? I thought you believed that God loves everyone. He does love everyone, and everyone has inestimable value in his sight. But our choices to sin and to disobey God, according to the Bible, separate us from him because of his holiness and justice. He simply can't tolerate or ignore sin. But what about the fact that some people are so much better than others? Some people do a lot less bad and a lot more good than other people. Why paint them all with the same broad brushstroke? Think of it this way. Imagine that the whole human race is lined up on the coast of California, and the goal is to swim to Hawaii. Imagine that each person gets a certain distance based on how good a life they've lived. Now, let's take Hitler first, maybe the worst example we can think of. 
He gets only a few yards offshore before he drowns in ankle-deep water. I would say so. That's right. Now, I, on the other hand, get, let's say, five miles. Let's suppose, Lamar, you get 10 miles and that Mother Teresa and Gandhi get 100 miles off the shore. Now, Mother Teresa, you may notice, got 10 times as far as you did. And you could point out that you got twice as far as I did. In your example, maybe. (laughs) And I certainly got hundreds of times further than Hitler. But what's the problem we all have in common? I guess the problem is that although some got further than others, we all drowned. We not only all drowned, we drowned thousands of miles short. You see, Lamar, if I'm the standard of comparison, then I think you're in great shape. But neither I nor any other human is the standard. God is. Most people tend to think that God will grade on a curve. (laughs) Well, yeah, now that you mention it, I guess that has been my assumption. I'm not as good as some, but I've certainly been better than a lot, and I've just kind of assumed that God would curve the test so that some of us would pass, or else heaven would be a pretty lonely and empty place. We assume that God has to make a cutoff somewhere. It's like we're on a ladder, climbing our way up to heaven by doing good deeds. We're counting on the fact that the cutoff must be somewhere below the rung on which we're standing. Now, if that were God's system, then he'd have to be very arbitrary. Hey, God, why not lower it one more rung so I can get in? And he'd end up approving of a lot of evil. Well, this feels pretty uh, uncomfortable and intimidating, Bill, but I think I see your point. What the Bible describes is not a grading on the curve, but rather a pass-fail system. To pass, you have to be perfect. Anything less is failure. God won't dumb down his standard or approve of any evil. Why couldn't God simply expect everyone to do their best? That doesn't help me a bit, Lamar. Even if God were willing to lower his standard and all I had to do was my personal best, I flunked that standard miserably too. You don't think you do your best? Some of the time I do, but too often I don't. There are times when I know what I should do and I don't do it. Other times when I know I shouldn't do or think something, but I go ahead and do it anyhow. Well, how about if we could get God to lower his standard to uh, do your best some of the time? (laughs) Well, now you've finally gotten the bar low enough for me to climb over. (laughs) Bill, your your logic is hard to argue with. I guess God surely must be just and maintain his standards, and certainly none of us comes close to measuring up to perfection. But, you know, I've, I've always felt pretty optimistic about my chances for getting into heaven, but this conversation makes me feel pretty overwhelmed and discouraged. If what you're saying is true, what hope do any of us have? Lamar, I thought you'd never ask. This issue of getting into a relationship with God and and gaining eternal life, it's a good news, bad news story. The bad news has to be established before the good news can be appreciated or understood. Well, Good. I I think I'm ready for some good news. Let me have it now. <laughs> well, the good news is simply this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth about 2,000 years ago to fully pay the penalty for all of our sins by dying on the cross and then to offer forgiveness as a free gift with no strings attached, a complete pardon for anyone who will receive it. Wow, that's that's a mouthful. I think I'm going to need to uh, ask you to unpack that a little bit for me. Would you do that? Well, I have a favorite story that might help. Here goes. 
In another country, a long time ago, there was a very tough penalty for stealing. As a matter of fact, they'd cut your hand off. Now, one particular judge was meticulous and consistent in applying the law and in his sentencing. No one could bribe or intimidate him. He treated everybody the same, regardless of their status. If you were in his court and convicted of stealing, you were sure to get justice, and you were going to lose a hand. A good judge, in other words. Exactly. One day, an old woman was brought into his court, and after the testimony of a couple of eyewitnesses, she admitted her guilt. Everyone waited with bated breath for sentencing because they all knew that this woman was the judge's mother. Would he be lenient because of the love of a son for his mother? Or would he be just in applying the law? Well, everyone was stunned when they heard him announce the penalty, the removal of a hand. Then something even more shocking took place. He left his place of authority. He threw his arms around his mother, told her how much he loved her. And then he had his own hand cut off instead of hers. That gives me chills. What a story. Well, to me, that story illustrates the possibility of an excruciating merger of love and justice. The judge was unwaveringly committed to justice and to upholding the law. Yet at the same time, he demonstrated the depth of his love for his mother by making the supreme personal sacrifice. And you're saying that's what Jesus did by dying on the cross? Exactly. Some people think that Jesus came to this earth simply to provide us with a good example of how we ought to live our lives. But if that's all he did, he actually made our problem worse. I have a hard enough time following the Ten Commandments, and now I have to follow the example and teachings of Jesus to qualify for heaven? It's impossible. It's like throwing a drowning man a boulder. Here, maybe this will help. Fortunately, Jesus actually paid the penalty for us that we should have had to pay. But, Bill, how could one man pay the penalty for billions of people, all mankind? One man couldn't. But the God-man, Jesus, could. The Bible tells us that Jesus, as God, actually created our world and all of us. So what we have here is the Creator coming to planet Earth some 2,000 years ago, sacrificing His life, giving his life in exchange for us creatures that he loves. He made up the rules that we've all broken. Then, because he loves us, he humbled himself and came here to suffer the ultimate punishment in our place. God himself could and did pay the penalty. You're right, Lamar. No mere man would have or could have done that. Let me see if I understand something. Does this suddenly imply that everyone today, and for that matter throughout history, has a pass? Everyone gets to go straight to heaven? Since Christ paid the penalty for us all, does that mean we're all automatically in? No, it doesn't. Just because the payment is made in full, just because the pardon is offered, that doesn't mean that the pardon is in effect. It has to be received. God has offered us this incredible gift And we're then faced with the most important decision of our lives. Is it possible I've already received this gift through the journey I've been on these past few months and I simply haven't realized it? I don't think so, Lamar. You remember that question I asked at the beginning of this conversation about standing at the gate of heaven, why should I let you in? Do you remember your answer? Yeah, I remember the question, and I remember I didn't really have much of an answer. (laughs) 
I think I said that I've tried to live a good life or something like that. Well, the reason I think that question is such a helpful question is that it, it gets right at the heart of what we're trusting in as the basis for our acceptance with God. Now, if God asked me that question and I told him he should let me in because of how good a life I've led, what would that tell you that I'm really trusting in, Lamar? Well, I guess that would indicate that you were trusting in yourself, your own behavior. Exactly. Trusting in myself and my own goodness and performance and in my ability to earn a relationship with God. To receive the gift, to truly believe in Christ, means to place all my trust and confidence in Him and His payment, not in my goodness or my performance. Your answer indicated to me that you haven't yet made that decision to receive the gift, to place your trust in Jesus Christ, or to to transfer the trust from yourself to Him. Okay, now that you've clarified the issue, I agree with you. Not only have I not done that, I feel like I'm still not quite ready. I feel like I want to do it, which is actually quite a surprise to me. I just want to make sure I've gotten all my questions answered. No, correction. I know I'll never get all my questions answered. This uh, concept, rational as it sounds, hopeful as it feels, it's, it's still a bit shocking and a bit too new. The idea that getting to heaven has nothing to do with how good or bad you are, that it's a gift, I just feel the need to let this rattle around in my brain for a little while. Lamar, I'm not a mind reader, but but I don't have the sense at all that you're evading or avoiding. I think your sincere pursuit is going to eventually lead you to the place where enough of your questions are answered that you'll be ready to place your trust in Christ. I think our flight's going to end before I really run out of questions, but let me ask you a couple of things that just popped into my mind. Okay. You said God requires perfection, right? All through the Bible. You have uh, obviously accepted the gift, yet you admit you still sin. That's imperfection, then, that God supposedly can't tolerate. But, Lamar, when Christ died, he paid the penalty for all sins. That means all my sins, past, present, and future. Now, since he paid for all my sins and since I received the pardon, in God's eyes, I have a clean slate for my entire life. That's why it's possible for a perfect and holy God to accept a sinner like Bill Craftson. He doesn't have to lower his standard to let me in. Through Christ, all my sins were removed from my record. Now, when I commit a sin, I confess it to God and tell him I'm sorry. But I'm already forgiven through Christ. Wait a minute. I I thought you said that simply being sorry didn't cut it. Don't you remember the convenience store illustration? But I never said being sorry was unimportant. I simply said it wasn't enough. Justice demands that a penalty be paid. Jesus paid that penalty, and I received forgiveness based on what he did, not simply because I'm sorry. One of the beautiful ironies of all this is that the grace of God, through the sacrifice of his Son, allows me to be perfectly honest about my sins and faults. I don't have to rationalize or or make excuses. I can admit the truth about myself and still know that I'm forgiven. This freedom to admit the truth about my flaws, Mart has a way of beginning the healing process and, and helping me to grow and change. Bill, I don't mind telling you that I envy your peace and certainty and assurance. As a matter of fact, I told you long ago that I admired that about you. 
if I don't quit here, I may get emotional. <clears throat> and Oops, I, we don't want that. <laughs> I do hate to see a grown man cry, especially when it's me. Besides, I still have more questions. Right now, though, I, I need to think and to kind of sort this out. Lamar, you can have that same peace and certainty. I think you will have it. But I understand that there's a, a need, it seems like, at this point for some time to, to process all this. Right, Bill. Um, why don't we get in touch on Monday after we've both had a chance to put out some fires and see what our schedules uh, look like. I'd like to set up a time to get together. One of the things I'd like to talk about next time, though, is um, what specifically do you do when you've made the decision that you want to uh, take this action and uh, recognize? Kind of some of the mechanics, what's involved, and actually... Yeah, exactly. Could we talk about that next time? That's a very practical question, and uh, and I'd be delighted to. uh, I sense that you could use a little time right now to kind of collect your thoughts and and i need to read a couple of these articles they gave us so um thanks bill well you're welcome hey uh here comes the beverage cart with some fresh coffee just in the nick of time fresh you say man you are an optimist (laughs) 